Section 28 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 6, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Elizabeth, Chapter 7, Part 4. On the 12th of November, Michel de Castaneau, Sieur de Mauvissier, came over to solicit Elizabeth to accept the office of godmother to the infant princess of France, in conjunction with the empress. She gave him his first audience at Hampton Court, on which occasion he was presented by La Mothe Fenelon, and was most graciously received by the queen. He was the bearer of five letters to her majesty, from the king, the queen, the queen mother, monsieur, and the duke of Alençon. The first four he delivered to her majesty after he had recited his credence, but reserved that from Alençon till after the business, on which he came, had been discussed. The queen expressed her full appreciation of the compliment that was paid her on this occasion, and said, that she took it as an especial mark of the king's friendship, that he should wish her to be his gossip, or commiere, for which she begged to thank him, and the royal mother, grandmother, and uncles of the petite madame, with much affection. She then made particular inquiries as to what would be done by the empress on this occasion, and what princess she would send as her representative to perform this office for her, and went on to say, that for herself she was at a loss for a person of sufficient rank to send on her part. The Countess of Lennox, as her nearest relation, and the First Lady of the Blood Royal, would have been a proper substitute on this occasion, but her immediate connection with the Queen of Scots, and the infant King James, deterred Elizabeth from allowing her to proceed to France, and to prevent the possibility of jealousy of any other lady of the court, whom she might have selected for this office, Elizabeth chose to be represented by a male proxy, at the baptism of the infant princess of France. William Somerset, Earl of Worcester, a Catholic, was the nobleman dispatched by her on this mission, and her godmother's gift was a font of pure gold. The queen kept her wily statesman, Walsingham, in France, as her ambassador, while her absurd marriage treaty was negotiating. He was eager for his recall, and his wife beset the queen, frequently with tears and lamentations, that she would permit him to come back. At last, the clerk of the council, Sir Thomas Smith, obtained a promise to that effect, in a dialogue related by him, in which he gives a glimpse of Queen Elizabeth at her council board, not in the formal discussion of business, but in a little familiar chat, while official papers were receiving her signature. At the signing of Her Majesty's letters to you, writes he to Walsingham, this morning I said to the Queen, Madam, my Lord Ambassador looks now to have some word from your Majesty, respecting his return. It would comfort him very much. Well, said the Queen, he shall come. Yea, quoth I, but the poor gentleman is almost dismayed. Your Majesty hath heard enough with what grief he doth tarry there. Well, said the Queen, you may write to him that he shall come home shortly, we think, with my lord of Worcester. I said, indeed my lord's train would be the more honorable, if he had one ambassador to go with him, and another to return with him. Yea, saith her majesty, but there be some make excuses that they would not go, but their excuses shall not serve them. I thanked her majesty, and came my ways, 
for she hasted to go a-walking with her ladies because it was a frost it was in the pleasances of hampton court she was anxious to walk that frosty december morning she hath appointed mr carew as the french ambassador but he maketh great labour to the contrary by her ladies of the privy chamber yet as i perceive by her last speech he is to succeed you yet in the same letter he says of the queen ye know how long we be here a resolving and how easy to be altered walsingham was still detained sir thomas smith whom he had urged to plead for the appointment of a substitute writes thus to burleigh on the subject i once again have moved the queen's majesty for mr dale's going and still she saith there are other matters between her highness and the duke d'alenson which it is not fit dale should be made privy unto howsoever the matter is i know not the reason but i perceive as yet neither his preparation nor the loss which he is like to sustain nor the grief to mr walsingham can make her majesty sign anything that appertaineth to his going smith went on to tell the queen that he had expressed a wish to burleigh that he would return beshrew you said she why did you send for him mary replied the secretary madam i did wish he were here at the departing of my lord of worcester to make perfect all things first with france and then with my lord of desmond into ireland why rejoined the queen i knew before he would take physic at london and then recreate himself a while at tongs i beshrew you for sending for him there is no hurt done quoth the secretary again madam i will send him word again this night what your majesty doth say and i think then he will not be hasty to come although i wish he were here and then continued he i had begun some instructions for my lord of worcester if any such questions were asked of him for such a nobleman may not seem to be dumb or ignorant of your highness's pleasure in such things as may be asked otherwise i think it be not your majesty's pleasure that he should meddle in those that is for the french that be here the marriage and the traffic all these her majesty liked well but womanlike said that she would have the marriage first after smith had submitted to her majesty some other matters of business she bade him tell burleigh that the count montgomery and the vidame had been with her and urged her to send hawkings or some other with a supply of powder to rochelle for the besieged huguenots under the color of its being driven there by stress of weather but she said that she knew not how to do that having been solicited by the french ambassador not to aid them her majesty adds smith prays you to think of it and devise how it may be done for she thinks it necessary and if it were done count montgomery possibly would end his life there being weary of this idle life here in this brief detail of the consultation between elizabeth and her secretary of state given by himself to his colleague burleigh we have a specimen of her manner of transacting business with her ministers and a proof of the twofold treachery of her political conduct she could not send the supplies to the gallant rochelers without infringing her friendly treaty with the king of france but she is desirous that burleigh should devise some underhand method of sending it nevertheless not from zeal to the cause of protestantism but in the hope that she may by that means get rid of her inconvenient friend the huguenot agitator montgomery 
when the earl of worcester and the splendid ambassade she had commissioned to assist at the christening of the little princess of france railed the huguenots despairing of further encouragement from queen elizabeth sent a squadron to sea for the purpose of intercepting her envoy and making spoil of the rich presents with which his ship was freighted they narrowly missed their object but took and plundered two of the attendant vessels and killed some of the passengers elizabeth was much exasperated at this outrage but as it was attributed to pirates she sent a fleet to clear the channel of all cruisers and utterly refused to assist the brave rochelers with further supplies she was now on the most affectionate terms with those bete noirs of history catherine de medicis and charles the ninth and appeared to regard the hopeful boy alenon as her future husband she then discussed the expediency of an interview and received his letters with all due regard the reader will probably have no objection to see a specimen of the style in which elizabeth was addressed at this period by her small suitor francois duke of alenon to elizabeth queen of england madame whatsoever i have seen or heard of the declaration you have made of your good affection towards our marriage has given me extreme pleasure and contentment and also that it has pleased you to appoint an interview between you and i which is a thing that i have so much at heart that i can think of nothing but to do all that may be possible for me to enjoy instantly this satisfaction as i have had for a length of time the wish of offering very humble and agreeable service in order to participate in your good graces of this i have always assured you by my letters but i desire to confirm it to you by word of mouth if it be the will of god that this interview should take place the which i hope will be in such a manner and so favourable that it will not pass over without the utmost pleasure to us both as well as an advancement that will lead this negotiation to a good conclusion the seigneur de la mothe fenelon ambassador of the king my lord and brother resident near you has charged to inform you of some particular matters to him i remit them i will not make this letter longer than to say that i kiss your hands very humbly and to pray god madame that he will have you in his holy keeping from saint germain and Laye, the twentieth of february your very obedient brother to do you service francois the apparent earnestness of this and other letters written by alenon to elizabeth and her ministers induced her at length to signify her consent for him to come to england scarcely had she done so when the election of his brother henry to the throne of poland caused a sudden change in her purpose when the french ambassador la mothe informed her of this event she expressed the utmost amazement at the news and after offering her congratulations she asked many questions in a breath on the subject such as whether the emperor would take offence whether the new king would make war against the turks or against the muscovites if he intended to espouse the princess of poland and if he would leave the siege of rochelle to go there this last indeed he did in a manner inconsistent with his honor as a general and his duty to his royal brother the young alenon succeeded to the command but neither possessed his military talents his experience nor the confidence of the army alenon wrote many love-letters to the queen from the camp before rochelle reiterating his desire to come and throw himself at her feet elizabeth replied 
that her people liked not the business in which he was engaged and if he came to woo her with his sword stained with protestant blood he would be regarded by her subjects with horror that neither she nor they could forget the massacre of st bartholomew which had been perpetrated at a marriage festival she ended by counselling him to use his influence to mediate a peace between the contending parties at france young as he was alenon was already considered a troublesome member of the royal house of france and had acquired the jealousy and ill-will of his two elder brothers who were most anxious to see him removed to england it had been predicted to catherine de medicis by a soothsayer that all her children were born to become kings francis and charles had successively worn the regal garland of france henri was elected king of poland what then remained to fulfil the augury but the marriage of alenon with the queen of england from first to last there was however a suspicion that elizabeth's preference for leicester was the great obstacle which prevented her from concluding the matrimonial treaty with the young french prince mauvissier ventured to hint as much to the queen during his embassy in fifteen seventy three tell your master replied elizabeth that i will never condescend to marry my subject or make him my companion the court of france after this right royal declaration dispatched a special envoy of high rank chateauneuf to solicit the queen to grant a safe conduct for the royal youth to come and woo her in person and the young gentleman seconded the request with letters which to use castleneau's expression might have softened a frozen rock they only increased the irresolution of elizabeth the state of the maiden court during the merry month of may is thus described by the gossiping pen of gilbert talbot in a letter to the earl of shrewsbury his father it appears anything but a pleasing picture of the jealousies intrigues and malignant spirit of scandal then subsisting among the gorgeous dames and statesmen young and old by whom the last of the tudor monarchs was surrounded my lord of leicester is very much with her majesty and she shows him the same great good affection she was wont of late he has endeavoured to please her more than heretofore there are two sisters now in the court that are very far in love with him as they have long been my lady sheffield and francis howard they striving who shall love him the best are at great wars with each other and the queen thinketh not well of them and not the better of him for this reason there are spies over him my lord of oxford is lately grown into great credit for the queen's majesty delighteth more in his person his dancing and his valiantness than any other i think the earl of sussex doth back him all he can and were it not for his oxford's fickle head he would pass all of them shortly my lady burley has declared herself as it were jealous my lady burley's daughter had married oxford who used her cruelly she was probably jealous of the queen's coquetries with her daughter's husband the queen has not been a little offended with her but now she is reconciled at all these love matters my lord treasurer burley winketh and will not meddle any way sir christopher hatton vice-chamberlain pursues young talbot is sick still it is thought he will hardly recover his disease the queen goeth almost every day to see how he doth now there are devices chiefly by leicester to make mr edward dyer as great as ever was hatton for now in this time of hatton's sickness the time is convenient 
dyer was lately sick of a consumption in great danger and as your lordship knows has been in disgrace this two years the queen has made to believe that his sickness came because of her displeasure towards him so that unless she would forgive him he was not like to recover and hereupon her majesty has forgiven him and sent unto him a very comfortable message now he has recovered again and this is the beginning of the device these things i hear of such young fellows as myself we are told by howes in his edition of stowe that in the fifteenth year of elizabeth's reign edward vere earl of oxford presented her with a pair of gloves ornamented with four tufts of rose-coloured silk and so deliciously scented that she called it the earl of oxford's perfume and when she sat for her portrait invariably wore those favourite ornaments this weak-minded young peer presuming on the favour of the queen and his all-powerful position as the son-in-law of burleigh grossly insulted the accomplished sir philip sidney before the french ambassador in the tennis court by calling him a puppy sir philip retorted with cutting scorn that all the world knew that dogs were the parents of puppies and added his defiance oxford had no inclination to measure swords with the gallant sidney and the privy council interfered to prevent the encounter but as sidney insisted on an apology or personal satisfaction her majesty was entreated to interpose elizabeth sent for sir philip and told him that there was a great difference in degree between earls and private gentlemen and that princes were bound to support the nobility and to insist on their being treated with proper respect sir philip replied with a noble spirit of independence that place was never intended to privilege wrong witness herself who sovereign though she were must be content to govern by the laws in respect to his adversary's superior station he besought her majesty to remember that although the earl were a great lord yet he was no lord over him and that the difference of degrees between free men entitled him of the highest rank to no other homage than precedency he then reminded her of her father's policy in giving the gentry free and safe appeal to the throne against the oppression of the grandees finding it wisdom by the stronger combination of numbers to keep down the greater in power elizabeth testified no displeasure at the boldness of her intrepid young courtier yet he soon after retired into the country where he employed his leisure in the composition of his elegant romance the arcadia elizabeth left greenwich on the fourteenth of july for her summer progress into kent her first visit was to archbishop parker at croydon where she spent a week and then proceeding to orpington the seat of sir percival hart she was welcomed at this mansion by a nymph who personated the genius of the house and was conducted through several chambers contrived to represent by scenic effect the panorama of a sea-fight which says the quaint topographer by whom the incident is recorded so much obliged the eye of this princess with the charms of delight that on leaving the house she bestowed on its master the sobriquet of bark heart in allusion to the barks and ships she had seen in his pageant after praising the hospitality of the loyal squires of kent elizabeth entered sussex and on the ninth of august reached the house of mr guildford 
the modern tourist will scarcely forbear from smiling at the following marvellous description from the pen of burleigh of the perils of elizabeth's journey through these counties the queen had a hard beginning of her progress in the wild of kent and lately in some part of sussex where surely were more dangerous rocks and valleys and much worse ground than in the peak they were then bending towards the rye on the way to dover which was to be the next resting place and where the premier trusted to have amends for their rugged pilgrimage either at mr guildford's house or at dover elizabeth gave audience to lamoth fenelon who presented letters from the king of france and her former suitor henry of valois requesting her to grant the latter free passage of the sea on his voyage to take possession of his kingdom she replied that to the persons of the king of poland and his train in ordinary and his furniture and effects she would willingly guarantee her protection either with or without safe conduct if the wind threw them on her coast and that they should be treated as well and honorably as if they had landed on the coast of france or in his own dominions but as to his men-at-arms she would freely tell him that she would not let them pass and with a bitter allusion to the affront she had received in the late matrimonial negotiation she added that the king and queen mother of france and even the prince had undoubtedly had a great inclination for the marriage but that the cardinal of lorraine for the sake of the queen of scots his niece had found means to break it and if he had had sufficient credit to do that he might have as much in things of less consequence and would possibly attempt some enterprise in favor of his niece if so many soldiers were allowed to land in england lamothe fenelon said her majesty must pardon him if he reminded her that it was herself and the people who were about her who had interrupted and prevented her marriage with the king of poland and not the cardinal of lorraine who had always acted according to the wishes of their most christian majesties and counselled them for the advancement of their honour and power to which that marriage would have conduced and also he had hoped much from it for the relief of the queen of scotland both personally and in settling the affairs of her realm among the amusing incidents connected with elizabeth's kentish progress is the circumstance of the learned and amiable archbishop parker considerately sending her premier burley sundry tracts and treatises illustrative of the history and antiquities of the places on the road that he might be prepared to answer the questions her majesty would be sure to ask him respecting every feature of the country and as she fancied he was a man possessed of the deepest knowledge and research on all subjects it would not be desirable for her to find him at a loss on this my lord treasurer appears to have required what the eton boys term a good deal of cramming on this occasion for the archbishop had privately sent him before lambart's topographical discourse of kent and now in addition the antiquitates britannicae and the new preface intended by lombard to be added to his history of kent dedicated to mr thomas watton at whose house her majesty intended to halt therefore the archbishop prayed burleigh not to let him know that he had this preface in his possession he also sent him a curious history of dover parker had made notes in all these works for burleigh's better instruction in his duty of antiquarian cicerone to their royal mistress on the progress to these burleigh added his own corrections 
where his quick eye detected errors or oversights and sent the treatises back to the archbishop with his revise from dover the queen proceeded to canterbury where she arrived september third she was met at folkestone by the archbishop parker lord cobham and a gallant company of the chivalry of the county who conducted her to the city with great respect one of her manuscript wardrobe books bears record of the following minor mishap that befell her majesty on that day at mr hawkes lost from the queen's majesty's hat one small fish of gold with a diamond in it third of september anno sedecum it is well known that out of compliment to her royal french suitor the duke d'alencon elizabeth cherished the jewelled similitude of a frog in her bosom in the form of a brooch but whether this petit poisson of gold with which she adorned her hat was emblematic of any of her numerous train of lovers we presume not to decide elizabeth was lodged in the ancient episcopal palace of st augustine where she and all her ladies officers of state and the members of her council were entertained at the sole expense of the archbishop while there a new envoy from the court of france gondi count de retz arrived for the purpose of informing her majesty that her juvenile suitor alenon was attacked with the measles which illness his royal mamma afterwards declared had obliterated the traces of the smallpox from his countenance de retz though a catholic accompanied the queen to hear the service of the church of england in the cathedral and was so enraptured with the music that forgetful of time and place he exclaimed aloud o oh god i think no prince in europe not even our holy father the pope ever heard the like unfortunately this enthusiastic sally of the musical ambassador struck a discordant chord on the ear of the student standing near who fiercely rejoined ha do you compare our queen to the knave of rome and even prefer him to her our reader will remember that defiances of the pope were at that time even introduced into the versions of david's psalms as in the following specimen of robin wisdom's paraphrases defend us lord by thy dear word from pope and turk defend us lord but marshal de ritz not being fully aware of the state of excited zeal which then pervaded protestant england took great umbrage at the incivility of the remark and complained to some of her majesty's counsellors who were present these made light of it entreating him to take it patiently for the boys said they do call him so and the roman antichrist too he departed with a sad countenance says bishop parkhurst by whom this characteristic trait of the spirit of the sixteenth century is related notwithstanding the affront he had received in the cathedral the ambassador dined at the archbishop's palace with the queen after dinner he had much discourse with her on matrimony and politics the queen's birthday occurring while she was at canterbury was celebrated with the greatest festivity by parker who gave a magnificent banquet on that occasion to her majesty her court and council the archbishop feasted them in his great hall which had been newly repaired and decorated for the occasion her highness was seated in the midst in a marble chair covered with cloth of gold having two french ambassadors at one end of the table and four ladies of honor at the other end the queen was served by none but nobles even to the washing of her hands says parker her gentlemen and guard bringing her the dishes 
so grand an assembly had not been seen since henry the eighth and the emperor charles v dined in that hall in the year fifteen nineteen elizabeth was so well pleased with the entertainment she received from the munificent learned and hospitable archbishop that she prolonged her visit at canterbury a whole fortnight she went to church every sunday in state to hear both sermon and evensong while she stayed being conducted under a canopy to her traverse by the communion board as parker then termed the altar of elizabeth it is recorded that she never travelled on a sunday but made a point of resting on that day and attending divine service at the parish church nearest to her lodging a good and edifying custom but unfortunately her respect for the sabbath was confined to the act of joining in public worship for the rest of the day was devoted to sports unmeet for any christian lady to witness much less to provide for the amusement of herself and court but elizabeth shared in the boisterous glee with which they were greeted by the ruder portion of the spectators bear and bull baitings tilts tourneys and wrestling were among the noonday divertisements of the maiden majesty of england dancing music cards and pageants brought up the rear of her sabbath amusements these follies were justly censured by the more rigid reformers in the days of elizabeth the harvest home festival in berkshire was still celebrated by the farmers and peasants with rites in honor of ceres whose effigy was carried on the top of the last load of corn a custom derived from the roman conquerors of the island on the last day of august elizabeth visited sandwich where her reception if less magnificent than in more wealthy towns was more affectionate and arranged with exquisite tastes all the town was gravelled and strewn with rushes flowers flags and the like every house painted black and white and garlanded with vine branches supported on cords across the streets interspersed with garlands of choice flowers forming a bowered arcade for her majesty to pass under to her lodgings a fine newly built house adorned with her arms and hung with tapestry the town orator made her majesty a harangue which she was graciously pleased to commend observing that it was both eloquent and well handled then he presented her with a gold cup worth a hundred pounds which she received from the mayor's son the orator who was a clergyman presented the queen also with a greek testament which she received very thankfully and it is to be noted that even in this maritime town verses were fixed upon every post and corner the same as at oxford and at the entry to her lodgings all these verses were put in a tablet and hung up the next day she was entertained with a variety of nautical combats in boats and the storming of a fort at stoner which had been built up for that purpose the following day mrs mayoress and her sister the durant's wife made her majesty a goodly banquet of one hundred and fifty dishes in the schoolhouse and the schoolmaster made her an oration and presented her a cup of silver gilt with a cover nearly a cubit high to whom elizabeth answered gaudeo me in hoc natum esse ut vobis et ecclesia dei prosim and so entered the schoolhouse where she was very merry and ate divers dishes without any assay that is she showed her confidence in the affection of her loyal mayoress of sandwich by dispensing with the usual ceremony of having the dishes tasted first so highly did she approve of the cookery withal that she caused some of the viands to be reserved for her private use 
and ordered them to be carried to her lodgings. On the day of her departure, a hundred or six score children, English and Dutch, were exalted on a bank, built up of turf, and spun fine baize yarn for the amusement of her majesty, who was always well pleased at exhibitions tending to the encouragement of the industrious classes. The improvement of manufactures and the establishment of crafts, which gave employment and prosperity to the great body of her people, were always leading objects with Elizabeth, and to those ends her progresses conduced. The royal eye, like sunshine, fostered the seeds of useful enterprise, and it was the glory of the last of the Tudors that she manifested a truly maternal interest in beholding them spring up and flourish. At her departure, Mr. Mayer presented a supplication for the haven of Sandwich, which she took and promised herself to read. Burley, Leicester, Sussex, and the Lord Admiral also promised their furtherance in the suit, touching the improvement of the haven. Elizabeth visited Rochester on her homeward route, towards Greenwich, for the purpose of surveying her dockyards, and the progress of her naval improvements at Chatham. She spent four or five days at the Crown Inn, at Rochester, and attended divine service at the cathedral, on the Sunday. She afterwards became the guest of a private gentleman, of the name of Watts, at Bully Hill, and gave the name of Satis to his mansion, as a gracious intimation that it was all sufficient for her comfort and contentment. End of section 28